0: Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Naomi Schlinke is a visual artist who, after many years as a professional dancer, decided to shift her energy primarily to painting and writing. But dance and movement still inform the spirit of her work and the way it is created. As Naomi says in the interview, she provokes the conditions where her work comes to life through many specific choices, but also leaves much up to chance and strives to push the elements of each piece until the whole is activated by the limitations of the extent of the chosen frame. Her most recent body of work, Being Mobile, expresses the movement and iconic form of entities and symbols that seem familiar, but also mysterious, elusive, and timeless. Naomi was just a joy to speak with, and we laughed quite a bit. I love talking with artists who are so thoughtful about their work and who have such an interesting life journey and experiences to share and a great sense of humor. Here is Naomi. Uh, Naomi, thanks for being on my podcast.
1: I'm glad you asked.
0: Um, so we are talking right now because you have, and this might not obviously be relevant in six months from now, but uh, at least uh, for now, you have some work up at Northern Southern Gallery, the Steps on Step show, and the opening was last night. And I'm just like so impressed with this work. It's so beautiful. Oh, that's great. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Uh, it just, I'm I know you, ha- you know what this feels like. It's just like, there's certain work, you look at it and you're just like, yes, like yeah. I see it, the forms, the colors. It's just so visually appealing. It's like, ah, I just want to eat it. You know? Which one do you remember? Um, the one as you come in the front door on the far left towards the front.
1: Oh, on the left as yeah. you come in.
0: Yeah. That was That's my the favorite. one we sold. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you got an eye.
0: Yeah. There's something to... I really wonder what that is that there's something that a certain something visually will resonate with a lot of people where some something else won't. I yes. mean what is that do you wonder, you know? Is that some kind of collective consciousness or something, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't wonder.
1: know. I think it it could be a a body thing also the the way y- you know, different people live in a different condition physically. And so the work resonates with their condition uh, physically. Uh, so you might get, you know, 50% of the people glom onto one painting and 75 to another. And then there's a few individuals with just this one special one that yeah. they like. And I love the difference in people's reactions because... There's this, I forget who's who said it, but there's this wonderful metaphor of for art that the artist listens to other people's interiors because when they hear what their work did when it went inside them, yeah. so they you can hear the space and how it affected them, and so that's an interesting feedback on what your work is doing outwardly, how it affects people. And the one that you were referring to, someone else, unless this was you, started talking to me about it being more like sculpture. There are a couple of uh, images in the show that were more sculptural to the point where they felt weighted, you know, really sitting down on the ground. Mm -hmm. So um, that's definitely a body transfer thing.
0: Yeah, which makes a lot of sense since you're a dancer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I definitely want to talk all
0: about that. Sure. sure. Is there anything else memorable from last (laughs) night that any kind of feedback that you got that was, that stands out or that was.
1: I was really, uh, I was kind of moved by how affected people were by what it means to create a totalizing you know, environment for your work. It, it's very sometimes frustrating if people just like see a painting, check it off, go on to the next one, check it off, check it off, so <clears throat> as individual objects. But when the whole room is, is kind of coated with this Event, which it was the walls were covered with that crinkly paper, people are slowed down right away from the get go and it 's a beautifully proportioned room, yeah, so that you are are surrounded it 's very much like this studio, a little bit proportionately, yeah, yeah, so the paintings spin around you. Uh, so that was really nice to see that people were stopped before they even went to any particular painting. A lot of people were asking me about the paper yeah, on the yeah. walls, and that's fine because, in fact, I invented that and create, you know, put it together with my husband, of course, Britt, right. and hung it and. Um, yeah it made perfect sense f- from the work and yeah. uh it's also very theatrical. you know I bring to the work <clears throat> a theatrical background right it It's not just dance but it is theater, so there's a kind of staging of things yeah. um that that happens so it, and really, I wouldn't have done it if Philip hadn't asked me to do it oh. uh so he that's his vision for the gallery that every artist should create. Uh, some conditions for their work that support the work and wake up the person coming into the space that it's not just mm. business as usual. Here's your commodities in a row on the wall. Yeah. You know, and that's a great idea.
0: And I think that would, uh, it's obvious with James Turner's work, who's yeah. in the back room, is yeah. the painted. Shapes on the wall, the oh, black shapes. I love shapes. that. I love yeah. that.
1: Yeah. Uh, the walls were beautiful. Bef- even, I mean, his work is beautiful. And I watched him make those shapes. And and the room was covered with those shapes before we put the work in. Mm-hmm. And they looked cool, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that is his work. Those shapes also. So, really, it's just kind of extending the creative process Ah. into the environment. And if you've never done that or been asked to do that before, at first it's like, what? I have to do this? (laughs) But, you know, now it just feels like, well, of course, I'm going to do that again.
0: Yeah. But doesn't this, in a way, relate to the way you've always worked, in a sense, that you create works that are in reaction to each other, too? Like, you're creating a, a, an experience or an environment? I mean, you've done that before.
1: Well, I don't think I've ever done anything to the walls.
0: Okay, to the walls. To but the like, walls. like, I know there's that one piece where you have, like, hundreds of small square images. Oh, yes, that's right. That almost seems like yeah. something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, over at Gensler. Uh, the the art, R.E.M.? Um, that- yeah, REM. REM, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they had that wall, and they said, do something. I believe that's how it happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, it was thrilling, you know, uh, to have that over the wall. And I thought, you know what? This comes real naturally to me. Yeah. Uh, it's spatial and it's kind of constructing areas of more and less density and i thought i'll do some more of this mm-hmm. but it never i just you know went back to painting right because i was really trying to build my ability to paint mm-hmm. and my ability to make images and improvise. Um, so, but actually pretty soon I'm going to be moving that piece because the office is moving. So I'm going to have to um, take it down and reconfigure it in a new office yeah. space. How, how it will flow and contract and will be interesting. And that's <laughs> so. just
0: a bunch of like, what are they, like 12 by 12?
1: Yeah. Most of them are 12 by 12, but some are 8 by 6 and 6 by 6. And um, they're just made with black on white, India ink. And um, <clears throat> a lot of them were made by uh, actual Rorschach. Some mm-hmm. of them, you know, mm-hmm. squeezing two panels together. But then a lot of the others are poured, painted, all kinds of things. Yeah. And they're deliberately, just like these, they evoke life, but they don't spell out. They're just manifestations of Living matter, yeah, and maybe some s- remote suggestion of a narrative, but they're made for daydreaming. Most of my work is made for just dreaming, dreaming, yeah. daydreaming. Un- if you h- lived with a piece for a long time, you would could start creating little stories, mm-hmm. and then the gestalt would could switch because they often reconfigure after a while of looking, they flip, mm-hmm. and um. Like, I, I had a piece when we were <laughs> laying out the gallery show. It was myself and Philip and my husband, Britt. And we were all s- had different opinions on which way the image appeared to be pointing. Oh, wow. And so, like, one person said, well, you know, it's kind of pointing to the right. And I said, well, I've always thought it's pointing to the left. Yeah. So, it all depends. On the list. And then you stare at it long enough and goes like, oh, I see, click, how it would look. Yeah. If you looked at it that way, the whole thing flips. Yeah. So I like that because I, I think that's one of the beautiful questions of art is how you see things, uh, not just with your eyes, but how you um, organize meaning in your mind. And you go over and over images and come up with... A story or an identity, even if it's just straight lines, you know, yeah. um, that, that happens.
0: I wonder how that, how <laughs> does that relate then just to step back a little bit to daydreaming? Like how, what would you, how would you describe what daydreaming is or what's the purpose of daydreaming? Is it like a different reality? You know, let me, let me dream about that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, the first word I would apply to that is dilation like a dilated your pupils dilate they open wider they take in light Uh, when you're looking at something I think I don't know this for Fact, but I think I've read that when you're looking at something you really like to look at, your eyes actually dial- can dilate unless the sun is hitting them. Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, y- you know, daydreaming is about. It's just the the ability. It's like it's like your brain is. You put a thought into solution so that you can rotate it at 360 degrees and it can move easily out in and out of rational association. You can make different kind of connections between things because you're not going down the same track. You always yeah. go down. Yeah, so yeah. something that would provoke uh, musing or daydreaming uh, or, you know, immersion uh, would be something that would just sort of pop you out of your track a little mm-hmm. bit. I think of it as uh, you know when you stand by the ocean and the wave goes out as as it's going out, it just looks like it's just gonna no energy, but that undertow that's pulling on your feet, like and you feel like whoa, what's that? That's a force. And so when you're looking at something that is, let's say. Pulling you in over time, there's that undertow. And for me, that's the type of daydream or dreaming or thinking or immersion that I'd be looking for that uh, a person feels for a moment that the painting is their space Hmm. that belongs to them and it's they can hang out in it and completely own it you know with their own mind, without mm-hmm. needing to know what my intentions are, what the, certainly they don't need to know the title, I try to make titles that don't get in the way of that.
0: but I wonder what now, you're describing <clears throat> how that relates to the state you're in when you're actually making the work, if it's a similar state or mm-hmm. a different state
1: Very interesting Let's <laughs> <see>. <laughs> Well, I would say I go through it depends what point in the process. I'm at. You know, you have different modes in in the course of the process. When I sit, when I'm just painting, let's say there's nothing else to do. There's paper on the table. The paints have already been chosen, prepared. I know the size brushes I'm using. So all the rational, thoughtful things have happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when I go to work, you go to that immersion condition and not reflecting, not not real reflective, uh, just kind of letting yourself move with the instructions you're getting from Mars, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know like, make the line go from left to right, do it in blue. <laughs> what? That's not a good idea. Why am I, oh, I realized don't, Don't question that. Just is that your voice
0: or the Martian voice?
1: (laughs) I don't know. There's a lot of Martians in there. Let me tell you. So, but uh, so, but then there's other times when you know you're really going. uh, You look at a painting and go like, "Okay, now step back and actually listen to the things in you that are in doubt." because it's easy to go like, "Oh no, 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 that's okay that that nobody sees that over there. I don't see I don't see that you don't really see that, do you? no, but you do <laughs> you have to bring it up to consciousness and mm. say, "I do see that it is real, and it isn't enough or it isn't good enough or it isn't realized enough, or it's an easy answer or whatever that is yeah. um, but in order to tap into something fresh, usually. I would say it's more like daydreaming. Daydreaming itself is a little more receptive and passive. You know, like a viewer makes sense out of things, but they're not producing things outwardly. So there's there's just another aspect, as you know, to making things that... Of manifesting, so yeah, I'm not yeah. sure what that all is. But moving from the inside of your head to making a manifestation about your responses yeah. to materials and to notions—that's I don't know what that state is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Martian. <laughs> well, maybe you could. Uh- for someone that maybe has never seen your work, maybe you could describe this current body of work a little bit more. Like, how do you see it? What does it look like to you? Or like, maybe you could describe... The process of making it in a simple way.
1: Well, one thing I, I could do is, re- I, and I know this is bad. I shouldn't do this.
0: <laughs> no. No? no, 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 no. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> okay, Go okay. Ahead.
1: Well, I, I, you know, people ask me those things like to identify it, and for I've been having you know a lot of studio visits this year. I mean, oh, that's great. Lots, you know, and I I keep up studio visits because um they're good for you, and if you handpick the people who you need certain kind of stimulation from, and or feedback, re- feedback yeah. and resistance. Okay, it's yeah. good to get good. resistance because you see, well, where is it? You know, so um, and when people would ask me in the course of the year, at like, I thought it was so hard to define what these things were. I mean, there's one behind you, yeah, and it's like, I don't know if we're in a rational period of art, but. You don't readily talk about mysterious creatures and beings and fantasies. It's, we have, we're in a time of very purposeful ah. art, understandably, because we're in a lot of crisis now on all kinds of levels. Um, nevertheless, you can't argue with... The guy from Mars. Yeah. Right, right. You can't, you can't argue where your work comes from. It, yeah. You got what you got, you know? Yeah. So uh, what I came up with when I had to answer this question uh, in the gallery... Um, pamphlet. Pamphlet, yes. Zine. That's what... Zine, yeah. Calls yeah. It, Philip calls Very it a zine. Very nicely designed by Philip. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what are who are the finished pieces? And So I say here, for me, they evoke a pantheon of strange gods both singular and iconic, dancing in the empty infinity of the white ground, impersonating living beings, the collage forms move and gesture, generating uncanny resemblances that suggest life and presence. So... Um,
0: yeah, I think it's good.
1: When we had them in here, you know, it's pretty tight. You have, yeah. And there were more. I There were all the work in the show, plus maybe... Four or five other pieces, oh, wow. all stuffed, you know, wow. in here, and I was like, I don't. know, Someone I was having a studio visit, and I and I, I sort of confessed that, like, well, it it felt to me like they were in niches, you know, like in either in churches or Greek, uh, you know, temples yeah. where you had you have Zeus and then you have this person right. and then Calliope and then you have the Muses or whatever. It's a custom in human culture to have these this notion. We don't have it so much now. Or it's the rotunda with these figures, the yeah. fathers of our country. So, but like these guys are strange, strange. <laughs> they're not exactly altogether normal. Right, right. So uh, that's what they are. Is uh, in some ways I see them that way. Which is another reason for the layout that they're so centralized because they're like iconic portraits of these creatures. And actually, the thing, the image that pops into my mind, um, when I was in high school, you know, I was dancing and painting, and I'd write and everything, and um, I remember becoming fascinated with, uh, you know, I think it's Hindu, uh, the god, goddess, or god, somebody will correct me, Shiva, or Siva, dancing. Mm-hmm. multi armed yeah with a leg yeah, yeah, and all the skulls and everything going on around the whole thing, and I thought, Ah, oh, this is great, a dancer associated with religion, I love yeah, this, you yeah, yeah. I was yeah. like, finally, <laughs> yeah, so but um also, I was just fascinated by it, and I set out to make a it was a four foot square, I drew it up, and I uh was using yarn. And I didn't know anything about embroidery, but I, I stitched it. Bright, colorful. Wow. You know. And um I got about three quarters of the way through it and then I went off to college. And I had it in a box somewhere and as I moved from dorm to dorm, eventually it was lost.
0: Yeah. I saw oh, my
1: mother. My mother, where is it? She yeah, says. right. <laughs> but anyway, so um it's kind of like a precedent just occurred to me that that because that also was like that, and I love uh, Tibetan art and other kinds of religious art is very interesting to me, mm-hmm. um, Buddhist and because it's all it seems very fr- free and yet it's all very placed, you know, to present these characters in a infinity of eternal narrative, you know. Yes. So uh, creation, destruction, etc. Except one of my pieces, is like called Femme Fatal. So right. you know, I don't know what discre- destruction we're <laughs> talking about there, but anyway. So,
0: and I'm wondering if we could touch on a little bit the just the technical side of sure. making the pieces, and not just the actual materials, but like maybe you know your body movements in making the work. If if you're somehow still kind of incorporating that because that was like one of the first things you said when we started talking about is about the body and it's like how does how do you think about your body when you're making the work and also how you actually make it totally okay so so you're using ink i'm using me
1: i'm using using me and i am in the center whether i'm making whether i'm writing or making dance or making a painting it's still the same little machinery in the middle so if you're a musician and you go to paint there's no way that that knowledge of music is not going to start working and 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 by the way uh uh, several people have called these very they have kind of jazz some people have said that they associate with the way it's jingling and moving you know so there's a but for myself um Well, when I, when I started making uh, visual art in earnest, uh, I mean, I, I would have been doing it all along, but it really wasn't till my late 30s uh, that I was doing it like, okay, now I'm going to plow into this. So you, I, I saw that in some ways you can click into uh, constructing images that are born of like this certain kind of purpose, visual purpose, like a man sitting quietly at his desk writing. I mean, that's a very specific image. You bring all kinds of things, but it has to read, <clears throat> excuse me, that way, you know, and of course there are people who would paint that image with kinesthetic abandon or brushwork or, you know, but you can also have visual artwork that appears out of it's not as simple as ab-x but a, a kind of engagement like a Chinese painting, a lot of Chinese painting and brushwork, um, that's not abx. x that's that comes from a tradition of looking at breath and arm movements and and these marks as a an expressive end in itself. Mm-hmm. So, and what is abex? Oh, abstract expressionism. Okay. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, got <coughs> yeah, you. I just sorry. never heard it said that way. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> you're too hip for me. <laughs> oh yeah, that's me, tunes
1: <laughs> So. um and and also when then, okay, so I had to make that split because I, I, I do have a series of, of a lot of earlier work that is very illustrative and storytelling mm-hmm. and little cartoon panels and things mm. like that. And then I got, after a number of years, I realized, I just decided uh, if I'm going to develop, I I mean, I have to get on a boat, you know, which doesn't mm. mean I can't do the other, but... So, who knows? I'll pop back to that. So, I started to develop that end of it, but going back to younger, when I was in my teens, and I would look at artists, you know, and I'd see people like Robert Motherwell and Diebenkorn and all those people seemed to me, obviously their work was full of movement. And if you're talking about life, you're talking about movement. Mm -hmm. Because everything, even things that appear to be still, are actually moving. There's no such thing as no movement. Yeah, right. You know? Uh, And it's kind of just a belief that somehow embodying that into the work will be a conduit for other people to come into that condition. That if they identify with... Breathing and moving that they can also enter in to the artwork, but some people can't. Some people really need something very concrete and rational out front, mm-hmm. um, so they have to go to a different artist. I guess. Yeah, right,
0: right. Can't work, make work for everyone. Yeah,
1: yeah. Did I did I get there? Did and the I question- think
0: so. I mean, I think what what's coming up for me, and we don't have to like jump on this right this second, but. I definitely do want to explore or talk about your dance career a little bit, too. I just want to understand kind of like how that happened and what it was like. And I mean, how did, yeah. Dance? Yeah, because you've already mentioned from a young age, you were, you knew you were going to be an artist of some sort. Right, right, right. right. You were doing writing and painting and dance. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I just thought um, – I certainly didn't think of it as a profession, nor did anybody in my okay, family. Okay, I mean uh, – but the whole family was artistic, uh, but just for the love of it, you know. So in and, and dancing, we danced in my family. I mean – Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we had uh, – I'm Jewish, and we had a Friday night Sabbath, and uh, we turn on music and do – Swinging, folk dancing, and screaming, oh, wow. and running around the living room. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and I had, this is kind of, uh, I remember being, you know, like maybe seven or eight and wearing uh, what I thought was like a tutu, and, but it was really just my petticoats, and yeah. doing serious, dramatic performances in the living room. Oh, wow. You know, and so, <laughs> and uh, whirling with... Great. You know, this performance energy. So, um, and my mother loved to dance. And my parents danced together. So it was, it just seemed natural. All of it just seemed like, yeah. well, that's what you do. It's like some people just pick up the fiddle and play it, you know. Yeah. I mean, then you get to your late teens and... Reality is starting to set in. It's like, uh uh-oh, how is this going to fit with anything reasonable?
0: Right, making a living. It's not.
1: That's the answer. It's not going to fit. You have to figure out a way to kind of get around the system a little bit and uh, stop thinking of your life in a way that will make it safe for other people. Mm. You know what I mean? Because your parents are going, you know, I wasn't thinking right away about getting married, having kids and all that. So, um, but I uh, I went to, I think the thing that probably was a turning point in terms of what could be possible was at the end of high school, I went to a summer at Jacob's Pillow in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. It's a all summer. Dance camp yeah, with yeah. guest artists, professionals. It's a whole. You're just surrounded by professional dancers. Wow! So I went through that, and I went from there to uh, I was at a semester at University of Texas, and I didn't think. I thought, well, that's the end. You know, there's nothing either. I go to New York, which was too overwhelming for probably a little girl from dallas you know or something i didn't know what i didn't know as a lot of people in your late teens i didn't know where do you go now what do you how do you do it yeah how do you do it so um i had a i was in a dance class at ut and the (laughs) teacher just said you know you're really good you should think about doing this professionally, or at least go to a school that offers a degree in the arts that you can have this as a major. And I said, really? They have such things? I mean, that's how life yeah. happens. Yeah, It's spooky. Uh, so if it weren't for her, I wow. went then to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a pretty famous dance department. <clears throat> I met and trained with a lot of uh, not- faculty who that's their life is being faculty, but the guest artists are the people that really make the difference because they're, they're in the middle of their lives professionally and they've come to work for four months or five months, make a piece and train these college kids. So, uh, and then I went from there to San Francisco I did a lot of my own work and teaching and had a studio for a while. And then um, I had a great uh, stroke of fortune. I I joined uh, this dance company, Margaret Jenkins Dance Company, Mm -hmm. and also worked with Joe Good Dance Company. And they were, you know, magnificent experiences for me. Uh, It gave me a good uh, couple of years of touring and performing and so that 's how that all happened, wow. and just sort of towards the end of it, I was by my mid thirties I knew i didn 't want to continue struggling in the field of dance i mean i 've told the story many times, but the um, to support a dance, I knew I wanted to be able to make art all my life, some form, whatever it was and People who run dance companies, choreographers, th- they need to commit so much of the capital their whole lives just to keep it running. Mm. You know, you need to have a board of directors. You need to have everything planned way in advance. You need to, you need to pay salaries, you know, if you want to work with prof- other professional dancers. Now, mm-hmm. if you're just a pickup, you know now and then so i thought and i'm basically an introvert as most artists yeah, are right so i just thought and i do writing and painting were, were right there for me so i thought and i had had three knee surgeries Oh, geez. <laughs> so i thought i thought you know what I may just kind of back, you know, the 35, that's not a bad time to go away from performing. And uh, I met my husband right around that time, mm. Britt Schlinky and he's an architect. And um, I got this whole infusion of learning about visual things, mm. which I had never done, you know, the art. I mean, I'd always been looking at books and paintings, but uh, we went on a six-month tour of Europe in a VW wow. bus, you know, the way people do. Yeah. And we, I just learned. That was like my college education in art. You know, my MFA was touring through all these museums. and With Brett. With Brett. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And having him... Be the teacher he could oh, nice. he knew the all the history he could do all the history of the architecture and uh and you know driving through the south of France and I, must I mean, have been I, a
0: wonderfully romantic
1: oh, time. it was great it was great it still is it still oh, is oh uh but you know, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, so mm. in the suburbs, so yeah. it wasn't really I used to dream about thinking. Oh, a really magical way to live is to be walking through the forest, you know, like in a fairy tale with all the trees. I mean, because there's nothing like that in the suburbs. Everything was like leveled, cleared. Yeah. There were one tree here, one tree there, yeah, you know. Right, right, right. No, no parks, no nothing, you know. Ugh. So uh, it's better now. Yeah, but, yeah, um So that's kind of, it all kind of tumbled one thing you know, into another, and it was supported by the people that I met, you know.
0: Um, I wondered if you could just, um, we could just back up for a second, and you could just maybe give me an idea of what it was like to live and breathe dance for you know, 10 plus years in San Francisco. Like, and just all this, like, I just, I don't know. It just seems like such a kind of a fascinating world, especially when you're thinking about like the 70s and 80s and experimental and all this stuff. I mean, what was it like? It was great. it
1: It was great. It was great. I was like, I often say, I mean, I'm so glad I was born when I was because, I mean, being in San Francisco in the 70s, it was both, I think both New York and San Francisco, the cities were, you know, they were a little run down yeah. at that time. But still, what that meant was there was lots of low-cost rent and yeah. studio space yeah. for, you know, dance studios and things like that. So um,
0: You could just focus on your art instead of stressing about...
1: I don't know where to begin on that. It was just, like, wide open. I mean, mm. the the city and, of course, all the people I was hanging with were all you know dancers and artists and musicians and um it sounds like a rich life it it me. it was it was it was uh, well it was also kind of like you can't couldn't do it for too long it was all oh, okay. also a lot of fumes of right various uh ingesting various things <laughs> yeah, yeah. lots of ingesting running to the beaches and then going back to the studio and you know so wow. um I don't see where to start on that.
0: Uh, Maybe just um, kind of relate what it's like to just be, you know, maybe some memorable experiences of being in a dance performance where you've kind of reached some kind of height of
1: uh, experience. I I can do that. Uh, The first one that comes to mind is um, uh, we were touring. This was with Margaret Jenkins, and um, I was in a duet, uh, and with this other woman, and there was this, she stood in stationary, and my part was circling her, and it was all in silence. There was no sound at all. So just doing that in total silence on a stage, you know, is very intense. And she did almost nothing. She did a few gestures like this. It, so I had to carry the mm-hmm. whole thing. So I had to be in it. 1,000%, and one performance in particular, and you know how that goes, one performance is this way, another is another way. I had no idea that I was doing this, but I became so engaged, and I I remember the movements we had to do, and da-da-da-da-da, and this whole thing is going on in silence, in silence, and then we finished. And there's this long, still pause and the the audience freaked out. I mean, it was just like, it's in the middle of the piece. And I hadn't realized how much I had invested hmm. just now. And And they did that as an outpouring of, in response to the investment that they were. When people applaud like that, they're saying, thank you. You took me somewhere. Yeah. Um, you freed me for a moment from the limitations of, you know, I got in my car, I drove to the theater, I got in my seat, I had spaghetti for dinner, and now do your thing, okay? And suddenly, they went somewhere else, yeah. and so, and I went, oh my goodness, that was a revelation, what it means to touch people that way, then it's a spontaneous you know, pull and and I I was happy that while I was doing it, I was in another space. I wasn't like thinking about the audience or thinking uh, just completely in that.
0: Or thinking about the movements, even like yeah. what's next. You're just oh no,
1: God, yeah, no. And I also did. Um, there's I did a period of of pieces for myself before I was dancing with other people that um, in other people's companies that were much like my painting structured improvisations that was very big in hmm. San Francisco at that time and that takes a kind of that's a kind of performance uh, experience It has its assets and liabilities you know because if you're completely present you can fulfill it. On the other hand, if you're not completely engaged, you'd better have something to fall back on because, you know, to pull up the material. Yeah. So, um, and actually I apply a lot of the compositional uh, tools that I learned, learning like how people compose, how choreography can be composed, specifically, you know, Merce Cunningham, John Cage, and all the, that era of types of composition translates. Yeah. So, um,
0: wow. Yeah. You know, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's very cool.
1: <laughs>
0: I can't imagine what that, what that would be like. I'm just wondering then maybe we could go back to, you know, you meet your husband, you go on this, tour around europe you're kind of being exposed to art like what what memorable comes out from that trip that you feel like still carries through into your work now like kind of like the springboard for your painting career i guess that's the beginning of that right
1: well it was sort of an edge. yeah it was like i I can't i can't say there's one particular experience there's just the uh, amazing overload of well, one thing I, I really saw was environmentally, there was so much more engagement, um, because there was so much more history and a history that included the building of beauty into the environment in terms of parks and, and also the history feeling in the buildings, you know, how many lives have come through here, yeah. you know, or, uh, Like I was saying, just the endless rows of, I think there's cypress trees in the south of France moving forever in rows of horizons. I don't know how it is now so much, but... You know, um, American development is, is happened much later aesthetically in history and everything in our environment is much more pragmatically based and gridded and things like that. Whereas, you know, roaming around Paris or Rome or, or even a lot of little hill towns in Italy and things, the grid is there and then it's not gr- there and the buildings have these like I said, history that is kind of expressed aesthetically. So, you know, you step into the mind of another time. And, And that was really good because, like I said, you As were my, sheltered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, m- my dad uh, is, was from Romania, and so and he was European educated. My mother's from New York, so we got a lot of that in our home—those uh, uh, books and music and and mm-hmm. all those things. But I personally wasn't bodily in those things until yeah. I, I did some traveling. So that's right. that's how that came about. Um, I mean, the first thing when I think of when I think of those trips is actually looking out the car window, driving oh, through, yeah.
0: not being in a museum. Yeah, was, yeah.
1: The you know. first thing is driving on the, in the countryside, and that the countryside is somewhere between uh, natural and man-made. You know, but it's all concealed and integrated. Yeah. Um, so ancient. Yeah, maybe. yeah. You know, um, it just occurred to me that. Um, you know, all, all the foundation influences, and you probably don't even recognize them until you get older. Yeah. Um, like, I keep going back to my family, and um, that religious influence, uh, our, our family was not, um, certainly not Orthodox and not Overly observant, but nevertheless, um, especially m- my father was, uh, we were very engaged in a kind of mystical uh, approach to Jewish life. And um, so I always felt like that foundation of like ways of looking at the universe and positing the idea of, uh, you're not even talking about God, you're just talking about uh, listening. You know, you're talking about listening for other aspects of reality that you could pull into your work. Yeah, uh, uh, maybe things that are um, obscured by uh, the necessities of right. uh, I- instrumental life. You know, mm-hmm. which we have to do. Yeah, and but it can cover up that whole other dimension. So, it, in the home that I grew up in, that other dimension was regularly brought to life mm. you know um, i you know our, our sabbath evening was uh like I said it was uh, it started out quietly you know we took the phone off the hook okay. we we sat around the table had dinner together and lit candles and said blessings and my my parents were not the least bit uh shy of creating that universe that like and it's not like oh bow your head and you know you're bad no it's none of that it was just like let's participate in this wonderful thing and it has nothing to do with earning a living, watching TV, all of those things that you're not, you're not just a consumer. Hmm. You know, what I mean, yeah. there's this other aspect to your life. So
0: do you still have any kind of like slowing down listening ceremonial type? Yeah, practices I sure in your yeah. Life now?
1: yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, aside from uh, attempting to keep Friday night observance regular hmm. um, uh, I mean that's all very natural t- uh, to to me um, I also do TM <laughs> I do yeah. I'm a meditator right. I do uh, I try to start my studio practice uh, every day day with meditation mm. um we're a little off practice right now but uh Britt and i do uh tai chi in oh, the nice. evenings at home we we studied in san francisco we got for a couple of years and when we got here we we just decided let's just not have to drive the car and go yeah, someplace yeah. and we don't need someone to start correcting the angle of our joints right we've been doing this enough years that we'll just do what we need to do Aww. so um that's a Wonderful meditation too, yeah, yeah. and so g- just participating in all those different systems um, invites a s- different outlook on
0: you know living. That's outside of the kind of the mainstream hustle bustle, I- exactly. You know, exactly. consumerism, yeah, going to work and all this. Right, right. Are there any blessings in particular that you remember from the Sabbath with your family that you really love?
1: <laughs> well, they're all in Hebrew. Oh, okay. <laughs> and they're very... The things that were beautiful about them, um, I, I knew some of the... I knew the translations. but uh, We did them in Hebrew, uh, but really was the, the music that went with them, the singing. Hmm. Um, and we would uh, harmonize a lot the, spontaneously. Oh, uh, I had wow. two older brothers and a younger sister and my father and mother and everybody. I used to laugh and think, well... <laughs> I would feel sorry if one of the kids was tone deaf because that just didn't exist you're expected to just start you know making up harmonies, you know yeah. carrying tunes and stuff like that so um, I guess music was really the medium for the that experience in yeah. a lot of ways, yeah so there's another modality right. you know, uh, and I think that's the best thing for kids. It's, it's just abnormal the lives we live now where singing dancing painting little plays that comes so naturally natural to children i don't want to be down on computers but they need to use their hands their real hands with real materials uh, and that's another thing is i do think the work comes from engagement with the materials uh, ultimately and that's just like being a dancer You can superimpose a purpose on the choreography from outside as a story of so-and-so, but it really has to come from the engagement with the body, you know. Um, Mm. Same thing with the painting. I mean, whether it's oil, which is, you know, oil paint is viscous and creamy and it's taking longer to dry and you have something at the other end like ink which is it's fluid and liquid and it disperses it dis- it penetrates other colors and uh, fibers so those are completely different conditions that produce different things mm-hmm. you know um, one isn't better than the other but they activate different worlds mm-hmm. kind of
0: Yeah, and so you're primarily using ink now, right?
1: I've been using ink at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's just a surprise to me. Uh, It happened by accident. Um, I was, oh, let's see. I was using, I had been working mostly in oil and acrylic. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, it's just keep going. Keep going. That's the whole advice. Keep going. Right. And um, so I got... uh, I forgot the name, uh, Coronado, uh, the press in Austin. Uh,
0: I, uh, yeah. I, no. I, uh, I used to work with them. Oh, okay, doing cool. Doing their photography for the Serie A project.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I'm in that.
0: Oh, you're in that. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: And so uh, I was, artists were making recommendations to them. They were doing this outreach and inviting people from the they may still be doing that. Community in to do who have never made prints, people, myself, and a lot of other artists. Who it was intimidating because you know you work hard to be uh, capable at what you're doing, and suddenly, just because you're good at this, suddenly you shift over and you don't you don't have two or three years of learning. You have nothing, and yeah, now right. you're going to produce something that's going to be made public. Oh. Help me. Yeah. So, so, but anyway, they sponsored, you know, they said, okay, come on, let's make a print. Uh, I was invited. And um, they gave me a few lessons, and then they said, okay, go buy yourself a bottle of ink and some Mylar and start experimenting in the studio.
0: Wow. Whoa.
1: So... I go, oh, this is cool, you know. And then (laughs) all of a sudden, all this pouring and the inks and the staining was just great. And then I happened into um, clayboard. Clayboard and ink are wonderful with each other. They're perfect. The clayboard surface is literally clay. It has Mm -hmm. a kind of smooth very absorbent surface and I did a couple of years of working on clayboard with ink. Oh, yeah. And all of that just came as a... It was a serendipity, you know, that that little bump over towards yeah. a liquid medium. Then I got tired of the clayboard because it was stiff and I, I really like... I, I've made other kinds of constructions and things. I like to be able to manipulate the support, Mm. make it smaller, make it bigger, change the shape. And uh, often that's Unless you just, you take the stretch canvas off the stretcher bars and, I mean, you can do things with it, but certainly with the clay board, the mounted clay board was very difficult to do yeah. that with, especially if you had a cradle on it already. So um, I switched off of clay board and I said, okay, now I really have to make tracks. I need to develop myself and more. And it seems it seems to me that the only way you really develop, or one of the main ways is to just make a load of work. You just lock yourself in the studio and yeah. produce. Right. Just just drown yourself in your own paintings. Yeah. And um and and not quick or anything like that. Uh and maybe two out of the 10 will be really something important. So that produced stacks and stacks and stacks of paper, of paintings. And Over the last 10 years, some of those paintings have been saved and shown, and others have been taken apart and made into collages. Yeah. And I made myself a, I don't know when it was, maybe back in the 70s or 80s that was very popular for artists to quote other artists in their work.
0: Hmm. Um, Like a little reference or an homage or something.
1: And even more than that, to actually borrow whole structures or, or... Oh, I see if I can launch into this. Like, like an extreme example, I remember seeing the Starnes twins had taken. I may have this wrong. A, a painting of this reclining figure by Manet or someone like very well known, yeah, and yeah. they had manipulated, broken it down. They'd taken it, made a photograph of it, the frames, and and a lot of people were doing stuff like that. And I said, okay, the thing about collage. And in my own work, the thing that'll make it different also and will keep me focused is to keep quoting myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Force <Right>. myself
1: <laughs> force myself to produce all the materials that I'm gonna use. Right. Because the minute you step off a, out into the vast universe of the internet and all that stuff. I don't know the depth goes down. You you have so much to choose from, you don't have to fight for something. So um, I I went through some collages that I made that included little bits and quotations from other sources. Uh, But um, then now, in order to produce these figures, I'm really just using my own work uh, to keep them recycling, you know, the impact back into itself. Right. It builds up its own effect.
0: So you're saying for the last 10 years you've mainly been using paper, like mulberry paper. Right?
1: Yeah, mulberry paper and ink. And
0: it bleeds through? That's it, bleeds, that I'd it bleeds.
1: About. Uh, this mulberry paper isn't has no sizing, uh, and so it's extremely buckly and distorted once you're done uh, painting on it. Okay. Because... Uh, the sizing is what keeps things the same size. You know, it's like flat, and but this is just you know, uh, I iron them afterwards. Sometimes oh, wow. <laughs> I iron the paintings, and uh, <laughs> uh, that's lack of sizing. It bleeds through to the back, and I have paintings on both sides that are interesting. Often, mm. um, I, I sold a painting that had a beautiful painting on the back too, just by accident. And I had made something out of it. Then I flip it over sometimes, and I'll paint from the back through to the front. I showed it to these folks. I said, no, they bought it because of what was on one side. And I said, well, you know, there is another painting on the back. (laughs) And they went, here goes, but they framed it. Two for one. Yeah, yeah. It's gone now. They can just change it every couple years. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's... There's so many ways to go from here, you know, in terms of the paper and the pigments and the uh, – I just will go back into painting, you know, and collage and um, – I, I think you just work. You just keep going. Yeah. That's that's basically uh, – the shows come and go. They show up. the. Whether anybody notices you or not or – but your main thing has to be one foot after another. You just – People, you make a life of it. I wanted to set up something so I had a life doing this rather than necessarily a career. A career is like, can be called, <clears throat> and they taught PhD and then they taught here and they received this award and this prestigious show and they're in this collection, and that collection. Well, that would be lovely, but I don't know if that's, you know what I mean? That's yeah. not... I didn't see putting, I didn't see myself as a candidate for that kind of life. And um, it wasn't the motor that was going to push the cart along. You yeah, know, the, yeah, yeah, The cart was being pushed just by making the work and coming in the studio and getting this cycle going of day-to-day life, which is why I set it up that way. Yeah. Because so- I, yeah.
0: Was that a hard decision? Was it an obvious decision back when you went on that tour of Europe and you came back and you're like, okay, I'm not going to – pursue dance professionally and more how can i have a life in art you're like okay i'm going to be a painter and then that was it you're just like i'm paint- i'm a painter now
1: yeah no it's insane <laughs> um, um well it was very helpful that i had uh, married an architect and an artistic person uh, so we could set that world up together yeah. it was uh, mutually reinforcing which is necessary if you're going to keep going. And I I just, like I had things I said before, reasons I didn't want to stay in public life, uh, which dance is ecstatic and wonderful, but it's very public and limited by real Like your knees. (laughs) Like your knees, or even if you're the choreographer, uh, just... Well, anyway, I won't go into that. Okay. Dealing with people.
0: Yeah, Um, okay.
1: (laughs) Of course, people is what choreography is about, so what's my problem? Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was difficult, uh, because I had to convince myself, as well as... uh, you have to behave in a way that you can believe in yourself. I mean, you don't just believe in yourself; you behave in a way that you can believe in yourself or
0: trust yourself. You
1: trust yourself. You have to show up. You have yeah. to show up every day in the studio. You have to do. You have to put in your life, your time, to make this unreal thing real. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I just had the good fortune of the financial resources and the emotional support to pursue it. And uh, we were living in a little house on uh, Presidio Park in San Francisco. Again, serendipity, it was good fortune. Uh, the person that uh, my husband was working for had became become involved with a Another person who was interested in getting a bunch of people together to buy a warehouse in the South Market District. Hmm. So, perfect. We bought... uh, We were in a... um, We didn't own our loft. We were members of a... What do you call it? A collective or... And uh, we owned the building in common. I see. And we each had space Uh, so that was the first time I had ever really had my own space Mm. and that really was quite, that kind of like now you're there, you're doing it you're in it, you've got this big thing you better, you know, so I just started. I just started, and I had good luck at first. I, I, all of a sudden, I in about four years after I started, I got to show with Ruth Bronstein. uh, Was it a really wonderful gallery in San Francisco at that time? She had a program of introducing new young people, et cetera, and I got picked up. So Mm. that was kind of miraculous. Yeah. You know.
0: Um and how long have you been in Austin?
1: Since 94. Okay. Yeah, we we left San Francisco for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh one of course is the li- life, <laughs> you know, you can't you can't afford to live there for the rest of your life unless you're a millionaire or you find some way to work it out, you know. Yeah. You live in Oakland, the edge of Oakland and then you you know. So, um both Britt and I, my husband, uh, our families are here in Texas. Oh, okay. Yeah, so right. it kind of made sense to start. You're in your 40s. Y- it's time to really start that next chapter of commitments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the road is splitting. You know, uh, the pe- some people going this way, some people going that way. And uh, so we picked Austin because where else in Texas? Yeah, right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right. and And uh, – So it worked out very well, you know, Mm -hmm. it did. I would love to see Austin keep growing its artistic opportunities. Uh, More people like Philip Niemeyer and Northern Southern with, you know, adventurous spaces uh, keep going, you know. We need more of that. Uh, not, Not just people who are... Just commercially vending one painting after another, but who are really have visions to have spaces that. Maybe they cause some ripples. You know, yeah. it's more than selling paintings.
0: Yeah, uh, like creating this experience. that yeah. actually, and Gray influence someone.
1: Gray Duck uh, does uh, tries to do yeah. that also. Yeah. you know. Uh, so it's it's a it's a good I think it's a good new trend to uh, to have people like that. It's a slightly different generation, of course. As a result it makes more sense not to maintain what's called a stable of artists because you're not working to develop certain careers and build them up so you can sell more paintings so that their prices go up. The way I see it, both Philip and uh, Jill Schroeder are curators and they are curating their spaces and they invite people in for these shows. They sell some of the work, but, it's that's a wonderful idea. Yeah, you yeah. know.
0: What thoughts do you have about collectors? Just, I think that's kind of something a lot of artists talk about. It's like, where are the collectors? You know.
1: Oh, you mean in Austin? Yeah. I don't know. I I don't think about them too much. Oh, okay, that's not Because I I think if they knew my work, th- th- uh, there would be more. I'd be out there more. But um, there's this. Connection between perception of uh, whether they like the piece, but also perception of my value as a um, identity, my identity, and where I am in the field and how much recognition you have. And so, um, what we need in Austin are collectors who are, don't care that you live in Austin. Because, you know, sometimes uh, when I moved from San Francisco to Austin, okay, I had a show. uh, During the first two years I was here, I had a show back in San Francisco, and a man from Austin bought my work in San Francisco, but he might not have bought it here in Austin. So that's the fantasy part. It's just a, a dark side of collecting, which is... You know what? What's the make believe part of it that that the perception of value, as opposed mm. to, or is it, it like who's hot or maybe who's hot
0: your friends or something? Yeah, like
1: yeah, I don't know. But I, I feel uh, like
0: that's such a different level of the art world that I think most of Austin is, or that I'm a part of, is just like most of us just like love each other's work and wish yeah, we could buy it. Yeah, I mean, it's not like yeah. You know Christie's or right. Miami Basil or whatever. Right. Like it's just it's like a, a hum, I, I more give humble. my
1: work away as much as I can, but you know the problem is you do have to maintain your prices. Yeah. The same. So, if you sell, um, and and prices here are very very low. Yeah. Uh, when I moved here, uh, okay, that was nineteen ninety four. I had a piece that was oh maybe 24 by 30 and I had sold just sold in San Francisco for almost $3,000. That was in 1994 or wow. 3. And now I mean, and when when came to Austin I realized, oh no, you can't do that here. Yeah. So, but you can't have prices one way in one city and another in right. another right. city. Right. So, that's where it gets to be um, complicated mm-hmm. you know uh, mm-hmm. it's not artists aren't greedy they just they they're plugged into a system that they can't control either yeah so, but it is
0: expensive to live here too which is kind that's of true. The tough that's part true that's true but it, yeah um i was wondering if i could i thought maybe towards the end here i could just mention a few words that i noted when i was doing research for you and see if any of them like spark anything that you really want to Feel passionate about talking about. Okay, so I'll just read them all out, and then you can kind of pick whatever you want. Okay, tarot, tarot, Jungian archetypes, uh, yin and yang, chance. Because I was thinking about the chance of the ink, like it's yeah, just like yeah. very left up to yeah. dreams. Yeah, any of those spark anything that you think might well? It's someone funny. Might want to hear about.
1: Well, I don't know about that. Okay, but, <laughs> but I I rely on the guy from Mars, you know, in my head. Yeah, so yeah. he he said uh, when you said tarot, I said tarot, but then then you said chance. I thought, well, you know, there's a relationship there between tarot and chance, and what I guess the only thing uh, the tarot came up because of I had done a series yeah. years ago where of these little cartoon things that look like cards placed in certain order and they had certain meanings and placed in another order, they had a different meaning, Mm. you know. um, Then you fast forward to chance and you're out out there with Merce Cunningham, Ham, Robert Rauschenberg, etc. It's not really chance, you know. It's chance and it's not chance. It's kind of the skillful manipulation of forces Inherent in materials, you know, Mm. so uh, sure, if I put the ink this way, I can't control the, the fractal edge of exactly how the ink spreads, I anticipate it, and I could draw it forward. But some of the best things that happen are just things that I precipitate more than I determine, you know? Mm. Yeah, I know. I've used the word chance, and it's slippery because really there's so much intention in what you're doing in every step you take in the studio. Yeah,
0: all these choices you've made.
1: Right. And there's all that intention and, and choice. I guess chance is the luck, the serendipity that all of the things that you can control and the things you can't control... Come together in a beautiful crash,
0: you know, and
1: produce something better or unexpected than you could do, like, with all your rational controls, you know.
0: We've touched on a little bit a few times, but I'm wondering if it would be interesting to talk about the actual physically making your work at all. I can do that pretty quick. Yeah, <laughs> um, talking the current work. Like, what is the? What are the? What are the steps?
1: Well, if we're just talking, why, you know. we won't go all the way back to how I make the paintings that go into the collages. I mean, unless you got because that's a whole process. Also, oh, it is okay. Yeah, I mean, briefly about the paintings. The paintings are are, and I don't know that the any of this is going to stay the way it is. So, in the last chapter, the last two to three years, right. say. um, like I said, the materials are selected. That—that That is that mulberry paper, which is fibrous, super absorbent, and uh, tears beautifully, is forgiving, It's all, all kinds of things, uh, back to front, front to back. And I use the ink, which is water-based. So all these provoke certain conditions. And I use the conditions of... Because of my own temperament and the way I look at things, okay, so there's that. then there's the triage, the selection of who shall live and who shall die yeah, <laughs> you know right, right. Uh, so the paintings are like, "Oh God, I'm never going to touch that. that's forever painting, um, and except after I croak, then they can burn it but <laughs> but and then there's the paintings that I say maybe this is a one off or it, this would make a great collage you know even better than the painting because of something about the activity going on in it yeah so um that begins with tearing and cutting and uh but i look at it for a long time before i do that and i figure there's a whole lot of things decisions that i make just through I I set aside time to be immersed. So I look at the sheet for a long time, and I don't plan what I'm going to do for it, but I figure I'm feeding my brain. My brain is taking in all the information, the details. And then actually the first few, I do the biggest tears or cuts first. Of course, that's kind of scary. You know, it's kind of like, farewell. Because some people would say, but wait, that has something you could save. No. that's I figure that's part of the uh, offering up the painting to the gods. You yeah. know, I'm making a sacrifice. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get something by giving something up. Yeah. You know, so okay. I close my eyes. I do. I oh, close wow. my eyes, and I kind of say something simple like, I'm going to separate this along the maybe a curve or a longitude or it's a lot like performing and dance because I just uh, close my eyes and I get quiet and then I just follow the directions that I'm getting, you know? Yeah. So, um, it's like a
0: ceremony too.
1: A little Sounds bit. Like. Yeah. Ri- ritualizing it a yeah, little bit. Yeah. I get my big chunks and then I look at all the big chunks and, um, often I go through and, um uh, it's a little bit more rational and I kind of cultivate them a little bit. Like if there's something really annoying or distracting or I just, I'm trying not to make them appealing. I'm trying to make them respond to my own response to this. So, and I'm not doing it because it's on its way to becoming part of a piece. It oh. has to stand on its own, this section, as an aesthetically rewarding chunk oh, wow. of pa- a painting. Okay. Okay, so all those have been as you might say, groomed. You know, I groom all those pieces. And then maybe I go in then now with a scissor uh, and I start start scissoring or then I just uh, look the other way and make a bunch of cuts. And, you know, I mean, it's it's very dangerous. <laughs> wow. It's it's a kind of a um, daredevil yeah. kind of thing. And then I take the whole pile and I uh, take a big sheet of foam core because I want a temporary surface for it at first, and I I do not place one piece and then one piece and then one piece. That would be death to the work, uh, because it would be too controlled. So I take the entire pile of torn pieces, and I put them in a big pile on the foam core, and I... I work it like I'm using clay or sculpture.
0: Like massaging it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Start moving around, getting rid of stuff, pushing it aside, using less, lo- using more. <clears throat> I use pins then. I go to a stage of uh, first trial, you know, say, let's start pinning this, you know, so I can, because you can't really see a painting lying flat on the table. Yeah, you, yeah. It, it has to stand upright. This goes on just goes on. It just goes on. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, you know, you think you've got it and then you come in the next day and you go, oh, are you kidding? Oh, that part over there. Okay. But after a couple of weeks of, if, if I've been looking at it for a couple of weeks and I don't feel like there's that little thing, it's not quite right. Or I don't feel some doubt lurking. Well, why do you keep asking yourself that question? And if it just stays like, I'm cool, man. I'm really here. I am so here. And I go like, okay. So then I glue it to itself internally, which is a super non-spontaneous activity. Yeah, It's a very much like get out of time, sit down, and you're very patiently lifting layers.
0: Because one know, little so, shift could change it. Right? It does. I mean. It does.
1: And, and, I I try not to be precious that it's not true that only that configuration, like I have on my phone, I shoot it during stages. So I see the piece going, you know, it's moving through these stages, other, other options. These are building blocks that can be made into other paintings. Right. And I see other paintings going by and I look back and suddenly I go, oh, wait. That was better back there, yeah. But oh um, wow, yeah, that's so, so cool. I can see that. So it's now it's glued internally and it's a solid piece. And I have these boards that I prepare and a masonite, you know, and then I can slide the thing because it has integrity now, and I can put it on the board and mount it to that board, and I can reposition it. That's another stage. Exactly oh. how is it going to fit in the frame? And I want it compressed in the frame so that you f- it feels activated by the limitation of the extent of the frame. And there you have it. Wow. Next okay. next stop Broadway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there a name for this series or group? Do you do that um, kind of a thing?
1: I'd, I'd, well, I have to do that to communicate with other people about it, you know, or... You know, you have to
0: uh, – yeah. to
1: give other, make, give other people a peace of mind, you have to make it appear that it's all rational and that you know what you're doing. Right. So, you make <laughs> up a title, and, and they do all have to relate to each other. So, let's put it this way. In my computer, uh, all, these, <laughs> all these paintings, and when I've written about it, and let's say I send it out as a proposal yeah. uh, for a show, I've been calling this group Being Mobile – Okay, Okay. so it's a kind of a play on beings and being mobile, you know, that they are mobile. So I I try with that title and the titles of the pieces to be suggestive without too directive, so that, you know, nobody feels trapped by a title, but nor do they feel completely left adrift without some little handle to start with, you know, that a title
0: gives people. Cool. And this work is on display right now at... Northern Southern. Northern Southern. Southern
1: Gallery in and Austin, Texas. And it goes... Uh, Northern Southern is at 1902 East 12th Street. And it is January 11th through February 15th. And the other artist, James Turner, also very exciting work. Y'all come on down now. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And hold on, let me... uh...
1: Uh, The hours are...
0: uh, Oh, viewing hours. Saturdays from 3 to 6.30.
1: That's right. And if you you can't make it during those hours, uh, you can contact either the gallery, uh, I think it's called Hello... At Southern, anyway, you look on the website and they have the right email address
0: uh-huh.
1: or you can contact me, you know, through my website also, Naomi.
0: Yeah. And you can meet people there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I can
0: take you there. I can take you on a, tour, you on a tour, <laughs> tour,
1: but you better be serious about it because, you know, I'm just
0: joking. It's kind of like a studio visit. I <laughs> yeah. Guess. It's yeah. like a
1: studio visit. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, is there anything else that we missed?
1: I'm sure we did. About your whole life. Oh my whole life. <laughs> is there anybody I didn't get? I didn't credit. You know, I, th-
0: I want to thank my. Oh, I want yeah. to thank my.
1: <laughs> well, I I thank my parents for moving to Texas. I mean, you know, they, we would have I would have been growing up in New York, and that could have been good. But uh, one thing great about uh, growing up out here is 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 space. Yeah, you know, I always feel when I go back to the East Coast, like it's like everything is just so packed and yeah, it is. And there's so many people, crumbly and old, and everything. So, Mm -hmm.
0: uh, well, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Naomi. Thank you for doing what you do. Really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it's fun.
0: All right, cool. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.